Stand Up for the Truth is sponsored by Lakeshore Communications Incorporated and made possible by your generous tax-deductible donations at StandUpForTheTruth.com slash donate. This is Stand Up for the Truth, a packed hour of challenging discussion addressing important issues and topics affecting Christians across the nation. Join the conversation via email at comments at StandUpForTheTruth.com. Now, David Fiorazzo. Hello, brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you so much for tuning in to this edition of Stand Up For The Truth. Jay Warner Wallace is with us. I can't wait to dive into some apologetics today. We need to be better case makers for Christ, mm. don't we? Well, first, I want to remind you to share the podcast. That's the reason it gets out there. And uh, thank you so much for doing that and for praying for this ministry. God bless you guys. Um, I'm going to hand it over to Mary, and she's going to introduce our special guest today. Yes, our guest is a Dateline-featured cold case homicide detective, national speaker and author. He continues to consult on cold case investigations while serving as a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview and as an adjunct professor of Christian apologetics at Talbot School of Theology of Biola. Uh, his books include Cold Case Christianity, A Homicide Detective Investigates the Claims of the Gospels, God's Crime Scene, and his latest book, Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World that Rejects the Bible. Great book. Oh, and I love apologetics. <laughs> wow. Um, I have a question. Question for you, Jay, um, and I just, I just wondering if you'll tell us a bit of your story so the listener can hear how the Lord began to work in your life. Not only as a great testimony, but I see the Lord's hand and how your vocation as a detective and all the skill and the seasoning that that entails really enhanced the research you undertook in investigating the claims of Christianity. And what actually happened after your wife said, let's start going to church? (laughs) Yeah, and I was not raised in in an area, we're here in Los Angeles County growing up, and and I just, we were able to live our entire young lives without, I I was never asked to go to a church. Uh, I didn't know anybody who was a Christian. Um, Hmm. And this was just not on my radar. and so I thought of it, and I, a few Christians I knew who were at work, I was working as a, an investigator uh, in Los Angeles County, and the few investigators I knew didn't really seem to be equipped to, um, they seemed to believe this as more of a matter of personal opinion and choice rather than that something that was objectively true about the past. Even though, if you think about our work, our work is typically focused on, well, what happened if you're working cold cases 30 years ago or what happened 20 years ago if you're working fresh cases it might be what happened two hours ago but you are trying to assemble the case based on data based on evidence to try to try to re, you know can reassemble what happened in the past if it's the you know relatively distant past or if it's you know just a few hours ago this process is not unusual right this this kind of what we're trying to do anytime we're examining claims about history mm-hmm. see i just didn't think that that christianity was that kind of worldview i i kind of thought it was like more like i don't know either buddhism or something in which uh, it wasn't as grounded historically i never, just never really paid attention to the idea that 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 christianity makes a claim about a series of events that occurred in the past, and you could test that kind of a claim mm-hmm. because we have all the processes in place that we use to test to do cold cases. And you know, in cold cases, I, I have typically don't have access to the people who were originally witnesses in the case, even though they might have been interviewed mm-hmm. uh, decades earlier. Sometimes by the time I get there, you know, we just did a case three years ago, it was about 1971, and by the time you're working a case from 1971, wow. and it's 2019. 
Um, you know, you're really at the end, but a lot of people are, are gone now. Uh, even the people who you might have thought were a suspect. Uh, as a matter of fact, when we finally identified the suspect in that case, he had been dead for 15 years. So, so the, the older the case, you don't have access to the witnesses. You often don't have access to the people who wrote reports when they interviewed the witnesses because those folks have passed away. So, so now you're at a place where you have these reports, <laughs> and they're recording something that allegedly happened based on an eyewitness observation. But I don't have any access to the eyewitness anymore, and I have no access to the report writer. And that really, when I first encountered the Gospels, it wow. seemed to me that's exactly what I was encountering. You know, another set of documents making some claims. You know, allegedly Matthew and John are eyewitnesses. Allegedly Luke is talking to his eyewitnesses, so he's just a recorder for the eyewitnesses. Allegedly Mark is sitting at the feet of Peter, who was an eyewitness. Well, I don't have access to those people. I don't have access to the witnesses or the report writers. Well, it's okay. I, n- I never do. So, <laughs> so it's just a matter of trying to to apply one skill set to another. Wow, that's outstanding. We just—I was just really thinking about how you know how did people who who came along after the apostles, they they didn't have the in written form yet. Even they just had the the eyewitness testimonies and the uh, preaching of Peter, and and then Paul started writing his letters to the churches. And it really we they didn't have the Bible yet, so they had to go on. You know, a, a lot of uh, eyewitness accounts, and in fact, First Corinthians 15, I remember, that's so important because Paul, did he really documents the eyewitnesses in groups, you know, the apostles, he names names, and then he talks about over 500 eyewitnesses at the same time. So it's, it's fascinating to us that you connect it with your investigative research from your vocation. I think that was a fabulous question to start off with, Mayor. Well, and a lot of this, too, you know, is, is that, that even Paul, most of us don't think about the kind of eyewitness nature of Christianity, but from its conception to its core, it, this is a very evidential worldview. Um, I wrote a book called Forensic Faith, where I really just kind of uh, pulled this apart a little bit, because what intrigued me about Christianity, encouraged me, was, number one, that this was not something that, that the writers asked us to believe blindly. You'll see this all the time in the New Testament. Hey, we saw this with our own eyes. We touched him with our own hands. Jesus uh, picks as witnesses. You know, sometimes you'll see that people will take that that passage where Thomas has to see the risen Christ, you know, and then he says to Thomas, you know, blessed are those who haven't seen but will believe. But the very next line, he tells them how they will believe. They will believe on the basis of your testimony, Thomas. Mm -hmm. You will be my eyewitness. Because there are only two forms of evidence, right? There's direct evidence, that's eyewitness testimony, and there's indirect evidence, and that's everything else. So DNA is indirect evidence. Mm. Uh, Fingerprints are indirect evidence. Blood spatter, material evidence, whatever evidence you're going to put together in a case, it's all indirect unless it's an eyewitness, then it's direct. So what Scripture does is it leans heavily on the first kind of, of testimony. It's the direct evidence. And so you'll see that Jesus is, is an evidentialist from the very beginning. He'll often say, if you don't believe on what I'm telling you, believe on what you've seen here in the miracles. Well, that's believing in indirect evidence, uh, mm-hmm. because the miracles would be an attestation. Uh, they, you know, then, or believe on the testimony of John, or the testimony of my father. Oh, that's direct evidence. Mm-hmm. So he was using both kinds. And then when he commissions the, the, the disciples, he commissions them as eyewitnesses. As a matter of fact, when one of them is no longer there, uh, which is Judas, uh, Peter in the upper room in Acts 1, he selects from a room full of people, about 120 people, 
and he wants somebody to replace Judas, who has seen the, the uh, Jesus from mm-hmm. the day of the baptism through the resurrection. Why? Why? Well, because he's an eyewitness. He needs to be an eyewitness like the rest of us, because this is exactly how Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses, mm-hmm. and, and you'll be attested by miracles. And by the way, the next generation of, of disciples are not eyewitnesses, right. and they're not attested mm-hmm. by miracles. Right. The eyewitnesses are. And what's interesting is that, that if you look at the authors of Scripture, like what are the first criteria for getting your book in is what? You have to be an eyewitness. Why do you think Paul in Acts in First uh, Corinthians 15 you described? He makes a point of saying, and last of all, as to one untimely born, yes, he appeared to me also. Why? Why is that important? Because if he's not an eyewitness, his book's not going to be in there. Paul's an eyewitness on the road to Damascus. Yes, right, exactly. And and if he wasn't, his 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 work would have been kind of like like Clement. Clement is a student of Paul. His book First Clement was a an, it's a beautiful book. It was used by the early church, but it doesn't make it into the canon of Scripture, either just the Epistle of Barnabas or the Shepherd of Hermas, even though these books were used by the first century believers. They don't make it in because they're not eyewitness accounts. Interesting. Wow. So that is helpful for me. I just needed to know, okay, so, so here's the claim. The claim is that these are eyewitness accounts. Well, you can test that claim. And there's lots of skeptics. If you talk to people, they'll say, oh, you're, you're full of it. You know, this is... <laughs> This is this is these are centuries old, written by anonymous sources. Well, that's the kind of stuff I needed to, to kind of power through because if they are centuries old, written by anonymous sources, they might contain some truth, but you could not consider them eyewitness accounts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I just needed to know were they eyewitness accounts. That's interesting, and I I think the thing that really drew me in at first was that um, you're saying. Can you prove Jesus without the New Testament? I mean, we automatically, our Bible flops open to the Gospel of John or whatever, but <laughs> then you threw down that challenge, and I went, okay, no, I can't. So <laughs> well, and a lot of that for me was just my own skepticism. You know, I, sure. I talk about the case for Jesus from Scripture in Cold Case Christianity. That was, that's a book I wrote 10 years ago. Uh, but this book, this last latest book, I, I wanted to flip it because when I first examined Jesus, I did that. I, I, I needed. Here's why I even thought of this because my skepticism said, "Really, okay, so you folks who are Christians, and, and it's only because I wasn't, I didn't know a lot. Like I wasn't in an area of the world where I bumped into a lot of Christians. Like it didn't feel to me like this is a large group in Los Angeles. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure it is. I'm sure it was. Okay, but at the time, growing up. I never encountered anybody. I mean, we would drive by churches. Mm-hmm. I never noticed them. I never knew anybody who was a Christian, and you could live your entire life quite, you know, successfully without ever engaging a Christian. I, mm-hmm. I did. Mm-hmm. And, and really, uh, when Susie wanted to go to church, it was more or less kind of a cultural thing. She thought, well, you know, when we're raising young boys, you always kind of wonder, like, what are all the pieces we need to put in place? Like, what <laughs> sure. schools should we be looking for? What kinds of extracurricular activities should we be looking for? And, of course, it comes up, well, do we need something that will help with the kind of moral formation? And I thought, no. I mean, I didn't have that. And, of course, everyone thinks that they're, you know, they were raised okay. They don't think they need anything, right? So so I thought, I don't think we need to do that. No one did that for me. I, I came out great. <laughs> you know, that was my view. Uh, but she thought, well, I don't know. Should we at least see what they offer? Really thinking about it selfishly. Like, should we do this? Should we raise our kids with something? <laughs> and I was, I was more than willing to go as an atheist because my dad had, you know, had done that with his second marriage. I don't have any Christians in my family, but his second marriage, he married someone who became a Mormon within the first couple of years. And so he has a whole other family, and he's an atheist. But he would go to Mormon gatherings 
just because it pleased his wife. Mm. And I was more than willing to go to a Christian gathering if it pleased mine. I don't have to believe in you, that nonsense. Yeah, right. But what intrigued me was just this idea that Jesus was the smartest person who ever lived, the most important figure in all of history. Because my suspicions were that if Jesus was really God, there should be more than just the Gospels. Like, there should be more than this small tribe of followers who pump out four documents about this guy. Like, he should have, if there's, if he's that big of a stone thrown in the pond, hmm. he should leave bigger ripples. And I just thought, well, if he is who he said he was, there should be ripples throughout history. Now, I just was not aware of any of them. Yeah. Um, but it turns out, if you are, you know, the things that I love the most, which were the time, like, I was raised in the arts, you know, my background was in design, and I have a master's in architecture, and then I became a police officer. Hmm. So the things that mattered most to me were going to be art and music and literature and education and science and all the stuff that you would say is part of the secular world. That was really, you know, where I, that was my wheelhouse. And, and it turns out that those are the areas that Jesus impacts more than any other historical figure. And I just wasn't aware of it. Mm-hmm. Christ the cornerstone. Uh, amazing. Um, really quick, uh, by the way, friends, if you just tuned in, we're with Jay Warner Wallace, and you can get more information at coldcasechristianity.com. And that's what I wanted to ask you about your books. Um, you've got several books that you made in to kids' books, Cold Case Christianity for Kids, God's Crime Scene for Kids, uh, Forensic Faith for Kids. And I'm wondering, wow, some of your writing is so deep and obviously apologetic-driven and evidence, and it's some somewhat for it, uh, the intellectual thinker that's got to reason through some of this and go, wow, this is just amazing, because uh, you tackle evidence and fact. And how do you change that, or do you, for kids and make these into kids' books? Well, you know, when we first started, we're getting ready to write two more next year um, for a person of interest and then kind of a, like a critical thinking book for kids. But, wow. but yeah, so we, we aren't not quite done with the kids' books. And I think as I become a grandparent, it becomes more and more important to me. <laughs> but but I, I think what, what we tried to do, and a good friend of mine is Lee Strobel, and, um, uh-huh. and a lot of times you get a books that where they are uh, eventually turned into kids' books. Um, but that wasn't maybe the first kind of iteration or the first um, desire of of the author. Does that make sense? Yeah. So what we wanted to do was we, we, we thought, let's just rethink this all together. We, 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 we got a co-writer to help us kind of navigate, but it ended up being such that we felt like that we really kind of had to do it on our own. And so Susie and I wrote these, and, and what we did was we said, okay, um, let's write mysteries for kids. Uh, yeah, we want to look some of the, you'll see in all my books, I'm usually going to unlock a mystery. I'm going to talk about crimes that I've investigated that have parallels that we can use in this investigation, all of that. But, but here I thought for kids, what if every book was just a mystery about this box they find in the attic or a mystery about this, this puppy that shows up on their front door. And as they solve the mystery, they'll learn the critical thinking skills and then we'll, we'll turn them toward Christianity. So I think what we did differently with the kids' books, for sure, and why they're so widely used is because we saw them as, like, my whole goal is to get kids to turn the page, like mm-hmm. they want to read the next chapter. I, I don't want them to put it down. Mm-hmm. I want them to keep on reading, keep on reading, because I know that the stuff we're talking about, if I just isolated out the facts about Jesus, mm-hmm. here are the facts, it could be like systematic theology. And then who's going to want to read that? I mean, I mean, I, I want to read it because I'm geeked out on systematic theology, but most <laughs> right. people aren't going to be. Yeah. Right. So right. I'm going to have to figure out a way to sneak in 
this, and I think most people are not interested in what theologians do. They're not interested even in what historians do, if I'm honest. Um, they, like for, you know, if you watch the History Channel, it's, it's not about what historians do, it's about what they discover. Mm-hmm. But people want to know what detectives do, not just what they discover. Like, they're interested in the process. Right. And all these shows are not just about the conclusion. It's an hour about how you got to the That's suspect. Right. Right. right, And so so I knew I could leverage um, the police work, detective work. And really, what we do is very similar to what historians do, but no one's interested in the process historians take. Mm-hmm. But they are interested in the process that we take. Mm-hmm. So I help kids to kind of, so we do basically in the book series, it's it's, this, it's like, a, like a, a young academy of explorer cadets who are learning how to be detectives from a master detective. <laughs> so the kids are all in that pre-teen age, because I'm trying to reach 8 to 12-year-olds. Mm-hmm. So the, the characters are all just a little bit older than that, so they can kind of you know envision themselves a little bit older. And they're trying to become, you know, I was a police explorer when I was uh, in high school myself, so I knew what that was like. Um, so I just kind of used that as a model. And it's all available at casemakersacademy.com. That that site for us will eventually also have an adult academy. And the goal here really is to, what, what can we present for free? Hmm. Like all the videos for each chapter, all the workout, all the worksheets, all the fill-in sheets, all the activity sheets, all the parent guides, all that stuff is downloadable for free. We just want people to get excited about that's why I think a lot of the time, you know, stuff gets used because we're we're trying to make it accessible and available. And you know, our kids' books are pretty cheap, so that's that's also a way to kind of get. get uh, and to be honest, I think a lot of parents discovered our material through their kids' book. Hmm. That's fantastic. Hmm. I love that you mentioned critical thinking because I think it's at an all-time low in oh this world goodness. on every single level. And I had the book with me last night at church, and somebody said, "What's that?" And I said, "It's about critical thinking." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, and it's so, so I, great. I mean. I, I have, a, I have a question for you then. Um, around, I think this might have had to do with the Christmas season, but I've had the phrase in the fullness of time in my head for weeks now. And I, I, for some reason, I don't know why I was deeply thinking about it. I became fascinated by that. And that's actually how I happened on your book. I don't know. I was online looking up the fullness of time. And you list, I love this, you list several strands or cultural markers uh, in your book that do point to a certain time in history mm. for a person of interest to arrive. And why is A.D. and B.C. exactly where it is? Uh, <laughs> right time in history, right place on earth, right cultural conditions. Could you just give us some idea of, of the research uh, that you found on why it was when it was? Yeah, part of the, the process of this book is to analogize um, the, the arrival of Jesus to like a no-body murder, mm-hmm. uh, where you get someone who disappears, and he's she's been killed by her husband, but he's gotten rid of the body, and it doesn't get work for three decades, and then you've got to go back and figure out, well, I don't even have any evidence of a murder. How would I know what really happened if there's no evidence in a crime scene? Well, how would I know anything about Jesus if there was no Bible? Mm-hmm. Kind of a similar approach. Well, you always look at the crime scene as a, or the, the crime itself as a sequence of events leading up to the disappearance, mm-hmm. and then a sequence of events that follow it. So you have a fuse that burns up to the explosive day that she goes missing, mm-hmm. and then you have all the shrapnel and fallout that occurs after the bomb explodes. So it's fuse and fallout that we show to a jury. 
and we show, okay, look, this is, what, this is what he did. He started dating this other girl, then he starts texting the other girl, then he starts buying the materials he needs to get rid of his wife, and then he does all these things prior to her going missing. And then on the day she goes missing, he starts behaving in odd ways that demonstrate that he's the killer afterwards. So this fuse and fallout approach is how we've done several cases in front of juries. Same thing here. I just used a fuse and fallout approach. Like, what's the fuse that's burning up? Because it's not just, like, where someone goes missing from or where you find that. Look, look, when you find a body in a certain location, that is actually a piece of evidence. It's like, why did he get killed here? Hmm. Why here, not someplace else? Mm -hmm. That the where it happens is definitely part of the evidence set. But the when it happened, why did it happen to, on, a, on a Thursday or a Tuesday? Why didn't it happen? Why did it happen on a Sunday in church? Why didn't it happen on a Saturday at his house? These are things that you have to look at mm-hmm. because they'll tell you something about your suspect. So I was looking at the fuse. Like, what is the fuse that burns up to Jesus? And there are really three strands of this fuse, fuse from antiquity. The first is there's like a, a worship fuse that burns. And and this is, I'm not going to be able to get into all the detail, because that's why you write books, right? Because this thing's got 400 illustrations. <laughs> right, you right. You kind of see it to see what it means. But you have all of these events that open up a small window. And I'm demonstrating in the book how the fuse of culture in the Roman Empire, the invention of certain languages like the Etruscan alphabet and the Koine Greek language, and how they controlled so much of the known world and had roads leading to everywhere else to make it possible to actually distribute the information about Jesus afterwards. All of these things open up a window of about 100 years from about... 29 B.C. to about 70 A.D., even the prophecies of the Old Testament prophets. And I put them in the timeline, so I don't think anyone I've ever seen anybody else do that, but mm-hmm. I needed to know, like, okay, so there's like 100 prophecies, let's say. There's more than that, but let's just, just call it at 100. If you can only agree on a few, okay, then put them in the timeline. When are they being made? Because you ever wonder, you know, if you need to have all of the information about the Messiah as clearly stated as possible, the what, when, how, when, uh, why, where, who. Uh, if you want to get all six of those questions answered, that um, doesn't happen right away. The first prophets who say anything about the Messiah don't give you the answer to all six, mm. but by the time you get to the last century B.C., you know, the first century B.C., I should say, the last century before A.D., you actually do get answers mm-hmm. to all of those six questions from the prophecies, and you get a really strong idea from Daniel about when the Messiah is going to show up. And if you overlay all of these windows of opportunity, the window of culture and the Roman Empire and the roads and the postal services and the languages and the alphabet, and, and you open up the window of all the different worshiping groups and their gods that they are worshiping and when they're still actively worshiping them, because it turns out that Jesus is going to fulfill to the best degree, every expectation of ancient worshipers. So you're going to put all that together, you see this window open up of about 100 years. And that's and Jesus falls right in the middle of that. And so this is really in the fullness of time, because God has orchestrated three lines of history, the history of worship, the history of culture, and the history of prophecy, to open up a window of about 100 years. And that's exactly when he arrives. And, and this whole thing for me started, that question started because I always felt like, well, if there was a God, he would be coming now. Uh, I mean, you know, look, think about the, look at the Internet in 2023. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you've got so many better ways to live stream and do all. I mean, wouldn't he come right now? Right. Uh, he'd have the best, most instantaneous uh, ability to communicate something internationally, globally, right. of any time in history. But I think that the truth is that um, 
this would be a terrible time to come because if you think about it, um, do you trust anything you see on on, on the internet? And, <laughs> and we already know that if you've watched enough Marvel films that you can make anything look like it's miraculous. Mm. Um, I, I think we have the least amount of, of trust in what we see. We're the most divided yep. uh, internationally we've ever been. And I th- and also, if you think about anything you learn in the digital age, is can be turned off with the flip of a server. Um, what I mean is, uh, let's say we we made make a, make this this recording, and, and you know where will it be? Well, this this format, if we publish it as a MP3, will we even be using MP3s? When's the last time you used your VCR? <laughs> I mean, these are just things we don't we don't use anymore. The technology changes. Uh, so if 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 you get a uh, let's say you get a hundred thousand listeners to listen to this interview, um, that doesn't actually go out then necessarily and occupy a hundred thousand locations. A lot of them will listen to it online. Uh, but if you write a hundred thousand manuscripts and put them all over the world, those things are tucked in nooks and crannies. They're incredibly hard to destroy. You cannot destroy it by simply flipping a switch. If we do a video. You can't. You can destroy a video by simply getting rid of the servers. The technology will date, but books and manuscripts last forever, hmm. even in ancient languages. Hmm. So, what's beautiful about when Jesus came is he came at a time when all of that manuscript evidence was pumped out into the uh, uh, to the uh, fallout period of of the first century and the second century and the third century in such a way that we can now go back and collect it. And it's very hard to destroy. It'd be very hard for any one regime to destroy to destroy the information about Jesus. But if you could imagine they did destroy every manuscript and every Bible, it could still be recovered in all the nooks and crannies in the fallout, because it turns out that artists and writers and musicians and educators and scientists and other religious thinkers have all written deeply about Jesus. And you're going to have to get rid of that stuff, too. And that's the amazing aspect of who Jesus was. Very interesting. Wow, fascinating. Mm-hmm. I, I like how you put that together. Like today you would think would be the ideal time, mm-hmm. but yeah, for the reasons you just mentioned, um, it's just brilliant. God, it just shows how much the, the, wisdom of, uh, the wisdom of man is foolishness to God, right? He had all this planned out even that's before right. time began. Um, I, Paul writes about that. And anyway, um, we only have uh, three and a half minutes left in this segment um, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about just the, some of the details you talked about, and this is in person of interest. The details that you might not think are important for the Messiah, because you went through and you listed them, the the one in, I believe, Galatians 4.4, when it just says, born under the law, born of a woman in the fullness of time. So how was that significant in evidence and in the line of the Messiah? Okay, so this means that if you look at all the other ancient mythologies, all the other ancient ideas about God, and I never, I, I was never somebody who was um, concerned about that. I mean, I think that sometimes people will say, well, isn't Jesus just a copycat of this other deity who, um, you know, is got similar attributes, dying and rising, all these other attributes? But the reality of it is, is that everyone on planet Earth, like 86% of us, believe there's a higher power of some kind a higher being of some kind. Now, how that shapes out is different. You'd have to ask each person. But if you did, you would see that there are common characteristics. And one of those common characteristics is that if there is a supernatural being, he would probably come to us in a supernatural way. 
and, and this is this is true. So so I think if you look at all of the uh, prophecies about about Jesus, you'll see that the overlay starts to give you a profile, right? I mean, you've got a certain profile. He's he's going to come a certain way mm-hmm. according to Scripture, and then we have to figure out well who meets the profile. But more importantly to me, and I saw those as you see them, but I also thought that the one in Daniel was the most. Um, um, telling. And it's interesting to me that Jewish people will accept some things as prophetic, as messianic yeah. in the Old Testament, but not others. Mm. And they'll, re- they'll accept some things about Daniel, but they reject a lot of what we talk about like in Daniel 9, those kinds of areas. Why? Because they are very specific in limiting the appearance of the Messiah, mm. and they don't believe he's appeared yet. And it says in, in that prophecy that this, this Messiah will be able to walk into the temple, but the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., so that means whoever he is, he's got to show up before 70, hmm. because according to that prophecy, he's going to be able to walk into the, into the temple. Wow. He's also going to appear that's, after the restoration of Jerusalem. That's right. Yeah. So there's a window, and now wow. we can look in the window and see who shows up, and who is it? <laughs> look in the window. A woman who shows up in that period. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Oh, fascinating. Awesome. Uh, friends, if you just joined us, we're with Jay Warner Wallace today. You can get more information at coldcasechristianity.com. We've got a lot more to talk about. And the book, by the way, that we're most often referring to is Person of Interest. And of course, you can also look at Cold Case Christianity or many of his other books. Um, when we come back, we're going to just continue just going through some of the uh, points in the book that we wanted to ask him about because there's so much. It's what, 300 some, almost 300 pages. Fascinating, over 300 pages. So a lot of deep thought today, but we are challenging you and we want to become better case makers for Christ as well. We'll be right back with more from Jay Warner Wallace. Your monthly financial support of StandUpForTheTruth.com is needed and appreciated. Now, back to today's Stand Up For The Truth with David Fiorazzo. All right, friends, we are back with Jay Warner Wallace, and we are talking apologetics today and I remember one of the earliest books that I can remember was Evidence That Demands a Verdict, right? Because there is evidence, and a lot of people just don't want to look at it and consider it and to think it through. They'd rather, it's easier to say, no, I'd rather not believe. And I think Frank Turk is one that says, um, a great question to ask people to save yourself some time. If Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? And if they say no, then they don't want the truth. Right. They want to live their own way. So, Mayor, I'm just going to toss it over to you for the next question. Yeah, uh, Jay, in our last segment, you talked about the prophets and how you overlay them. It's almost like it's a chronological—well, it is a chronological thing, but how it builds to this incredible uh, mountaintop with Daniel's um, prophecy about when he would come and the description there, which to me is one of the greatest prophecies in the Bible. But going back a little bit farther— you have a lengthy list of attributes of Jesus, and I could just dwell here all day, in, yep. found in the Old Testament, foreshadowed in Moses, Joshua, Joseph, David, and Jonah. This is the most complete list I've ever seen of the typologies of these men as being a type of Christ. And I'm wondering, I mean, how much time, did, how long did it take you to take every single one of these attributes? And, and, and now in your book, you're laying this out as... Um, part of the body of evidence of Jesus, how, the, the uh, work that you did uh, to research this uh, just was really, really wonderful. Can you talk to us a little bit about those typologies? 
Yeah. I, I, well, first of all, this wouldn't have happened without the COVID year, of course, right? Oh. We were all, <laughs> a lot of our speaking engagements kind of shut down, and we were sitting here, and oh, we had a relatively cold, wet, for us, we're in Southern California, so that means you might get, what, 10 days of rain, so <laughs> yeah. entire, entire winter, but but that was the kind of year it was, and so we I just sat in front of a, a fire here and, 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 and used that time. Wow. But there was often, there were often times along the way when I thought, this is never going to end. <laughs> like, this is, like, I don't know, at what point do I just say enough yeah, right, um, and, right. and, and I know my wife Susie probably felt that way too but but you just it's it, to me it is very interesting right here's why I say that it turns out what well, the first things we did is we said isn't it interesting that so many of the common ancient expectations of worshiping non-jews what people sometimes call pagans right the non-believing uh, not non-jews uh, they do believe in some kind of deity but they don't believe uh, in Yahweh well, the ancient pagans also have a number of common expectations, and you discover them by simply reading ancient pagan mythologies. So if you're looking at Osiris or you're looking at Attis or whatever you know mythology you're looking at, you just start to write down the attributes. And I wanted to see, like, what do they all have in common? Because mm-hmm. it turns out that, you know, Buddha has got more in common with Osiris than Jesus has with anybody. But it's because all these ancient descriptions of deity have something in common. Mm-hmm. Why? Because we aren't reasonable enough to think. And this is what Paul saw in Mars Hill, right, in the book of Acts. He, right. In Acts 17, he says, you people are so religious, you know. You've got, you worship everything. You've got this worship. You're worshiping the unknown God here <laughs> with this monument. Uh, I'm here to tell you, though, that we actually saw God, and we're, we can we can say with our own hands, you know, with our own eyes, and our own you know, what we saw, and and so that to me recognizes the fact that even Paul in his day knew that there were lots of people who had gotten some things right, because if you think about, look, okay, so uh, if you believe there's a God, you probably believe that that God transcends the physical world. That's pretty common in mythology. Mm-hmm. You probably believe that that God can perform miracles pretty common. You probably think that that God appears in a weird supernatural way, because that's what you would think he would, that's probably how you think he would appear. Well, you'd be right in terms of uh, all the commonalities. I wrote down the top 15 commonalities, and just to see how many of the ancient deities have, have these. And they're anywhere from, you know, five to ten common traits. Uh, every one of these mythologies possesses five to ten of these, different, a different five or ten. But it turns out well, there's one deity that possesses all of the attributes. And that's the only one that does that is Jesus. Hmm. He possesses every expectation of the ancients. Mm -hmm. But then I turned the corner and said, well, well, look at the Jewish believers. It turns out that they had expectations also that were driven by the patriarchs Hmm. and the typology of the Messiah in the Old Testament. So now we got to go back and look and say, okay, well, where's that? Where's that form? What's formed like from Moses and Joshua, and it's formed from from Joseph and Jonah and David, and these are the patriarchal characters. And if you look at the rough outlines of their story, uh, they have a lot in common with Jesus. Yeah. And so I started just to kind of list all those commonalities, because if you were to combine all, and, and I, I, I do this in front of audiences all the time, where I'll just put I'll put a list on the wall. Who is this? They all say it's Jesus. But it's not Jesus. It's yeah. Jonah, or it's David, or it's Moses, or it's Joshua. You know, mm. or it's, you know. So that's that to me. It, it turns out that there's one figure in history who personifies all of them, and that's Jesus of Nazareth. Mm. I mean, if you had some expectations that you got from uh, the, the kind of patriarchal typology in the Old Testament, well, Jesus would fulfill those. If you had expectations as a pagan of what you think God's going to look like, well, Jesus will fulfill those too. 
So it turns out that, it, and why is that the case? Because it, it, you know, I discovered this working as an investigator, is that you know when when the expected meets the expectations of the expector, you get the best results. Wow. So if if I show up and you call for a police officer, but I'm working undercover and I show up looking like a bum, but I'm still a police officer, you're probably not going to cooperate with me. I'm going to show you some ID or something. Why? Because I don't meet your expectations. I'm not in any uniform. I'm not got a short haircut. I'm not I'm not clean shaven. So you're probably not going to cooperate with me until I sh- demonstrate to you. No, I actually am a police officer. The one you called, I'm actually him. Well, it turns out that Jesus meets the uh, expectations of the expectors. And when the expected meets the expectations of the expector, you get a really quick response. And it's one of the reasons why Christianity thrives as quickly as it does. Well, that's incredible, because I, I think of the Pharisees and how he wasn't quite what they expected either. So oh they goodness. spent a lot of time grilling him yep. and that's saying, right. you know, and, and, and then Jesus said to Peter, who, who do you... Who do men say that I yes, am? Who do you say? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so and it, a lot it, of that is because you know, if you think about it, if you'd asked me, tell me something about Jesus, you know, when I was at 34, when I didn't know anything about Jesus, I'd have a hard time mm-hmm. even telling you who Jesus, anything about Jesus's nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is why I see that when people don't understand Jesus's nature, whether that's an ancient, a Pharisee, an ancient, somebody in, in Scripture, or it's a modern. Um, they don't understand that he does actually meet the expectations. Of, uh, he meets your expectations. Mm-hmm. You just don't know enough about Jesus to know he does. Ah, mm-hmm. I see. I have a couple things I want to ask you. Um, one is about books, and the other is about music. Um, on page 112, you say Jesus matters to authors and publishers. He still dominates the publishing industry like no other person of interest. He's inspired more writers and has been the topic of more literature than any other person in history. And Jesus, over 17,000 books about him, and the nearest challenger is William Shakespeare, 9,000. And I want to go over to music as well because your list of songs and then artists, and most of which we could probably say did not even believe that Jesus is God, Uh, it's fascinating that people are writing about it, singing about it, but let's talk about the publishing industry. And as you said, that had to be the perfect time so the documents could be written Mm -hmm. and then copied and then compared, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, I, I think that this is, people don't realize how much is out there and that records some ancient Christian voice. Um, and so you'll see this a lot, right, where, uh, where you'll see um, uh, the first probably four centuries, the, uh, the explosion of literature. And you'll hear people say, well, yeah, but these are, no, it turns out, if you look at what the non-Christian voices are saying mm. about Jesus on documents and manuscripts in the first four centuries, you could reconstruct the story of Jesus from non-Christian mm. voices. And so I think that's something that people don't realize. Now, again, you can say, well, they weren't witnesses if it's past the first. Of course, that's not my point. This <laughs> is fallout. This is, this is the ripple effect yes. of Jesus. If he is who he said he was, look, there's only three options here. One, he is a man, an ancient man, but just a man. Uh, two, he is a myth. He doesn't really um, live at all. He's just a creation of mythologists. Three, he is a messiah. Now, of those three options, which one, may, if he's fiction, if he's just a myth, can you tell me what myth, what piece of fiction has ever impacted literature, art, music, education, and science, and world religions <laughs> yeah. like Jesus? Yeah. Right. 
There is no myth, no mm-hmm. fiction, no no Yoda, no no you know Luke Skywalker, no no, no Peter Pan, no no one <laughs> has impacted those areas, which we consider to be the most important areas as atheists, right? Art, literature, music, education, and science. Well, they haven't had any impact on those areas, really. But Jesus has. So I don't think it's reasonable to consider him a myth, fiction, if you can't find another example of any fiction that could do this, why would you think this one could? Two, you won't find an example of a man in history who's had that impact on literature, art, music, education, science. You won't. So there's good reason to think he's something other than a man. The third option is that he is the God of the universe who comes into his creation. Now, this starts to make sense of the ripples. And that's all I'm suggesting here. Again, this is just, I'm a cumulative case kind of a guy. This is what I go in front of a jury. I don't ever have one piece of evidence. I don't have DNA cases. I have cumulative cases. And I bring out a death by a thousand paper cuts. I, I come out and I say, here's the 150 pieces of evidence that point to this suspect. And it's kind of hard to, to deny. But a lot of those pieces of evidence are very small. They're little nook and cranny things that you wouldn't think of that, that much by themselves, and they're not. But when they put, are assembled in the uh, cumulative case, they become very powerful. Well, this is where I think this kind of cultural evidence fits, because mm. we've got evidence from the New Testament. We've got evidence for the existence of God from the sciences, from the appearance of, of fine-tuning in the universe, from mm. the origin of the universe. There's lots of places we could go to find uh, evidence of God. We can find lots of evidence for Christianity in the New Testament, history, archaeology, literary criticism, all of that stuff. And then we can find uh, uh, this, this other forms of evidence, one of which is, if Jesus is who the New Testament says he is, I should expect to see the kind of impact in history that would be warranted by that kind of person, and sure enough, I do. So that's that's why I think it's important for us to take a look at these kinds of things. Absolutely. Yes, and all the ways that you mention here, you know, the sciences and all that, and all the believers that were involved in developing certain mathematical disciplines and all that, that was such an eye-opener for me because the God of this world has has blinded people into thinking that this world is all there is, what you see, you know, God doesn't matter, um, you know, there really is no evidence. But all of a sudden now I'm reading this and I'm thinking Jesus really is preeminent. Mm. He is above all things. He has created all things in it. Colossians it, 1. Yes, it really uh, opened my eyes to the fact that what we see, because the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one, First John, um, but what we see isn't isn't the truth. I mean, Satan is the father of lies, and the blinders are on in this world to get us to, you know, focus on the mud instead of yeah. the preeminence of Christ. And so I was very uh, much enjoyed that part of it. I mean, you, the well, first part, then, go ahead. Yeah, and that whole thing about science you brought up is so important because I think we were seen as anti-science, especially in this post-COVID mm-hmm. world in which we live, in which the debates about vaccinations and all of this have become such political hot potatoes. Mm-hmm. And so we are always accused as Christians of being anti-science, which is nothing can be further from the truth, right. not just mm-hmm. historically, but even today. I, I would say... As a Christian, as Christians, we are far more committed to discovering the truth through science than modern scientists are. Right. Here's why I say that. We talked earlier about the investigative questions, right? Who, what, when, where, how, why. Well, science is really good, and it spends its time looking at the what, when, how, or why, where. Um, and But if I stopped there as a detective, the what, when, how, why, and where, nobody would ever go to jail because I haven't yet asked the who question. Mm. The who question is the sixth question in the investigation. Now, what scientists are doing today is saying, well, there is no who. Well, well hold on. I mean, every question has six possible answers you need to be able to give. 
but there's no who in science. Well, okay, well, why? There was a who in science, by the way, for centuries. All of the, the, the major disciplines in the sciences have been established by the fathers of those disciplines believe there was a who. Mm. And it didn't stop them from doing good scientific work. I'm not, gonna, right. I'm not going to posit a who if a what can get the job done, okay? I will always go to the what. But if I see DNA information is required in this setting for life to do what it has to do, and I know that information only comes from who's, you cannot get information from what's. You can't get information from physics and chemistry. You can only get information from intelligence. You know, if I walk in and there's blood spatter on the wall, well, I can get that from physics and chemistry. I don't know if there's even a killer yet. He might have fallen and hit his head. But if I walk into the same room and instead of seeing blood spatter on the wall, I see a message in his blood, you deserve this. Well, now I'm looking for a suspect, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> because it turns out that physics and chemistry cannot get me that sentence. That requires a who. So when I see information in DNA, am I allowed to posit a who? Nope. Well, why not? It's one of the six questions, and I have evidence here that really requires a who answer. No, I'm not allowed to do that. Now you see all kinds of twisting and turning, mm. trying to, to figure out how a what or uh, can, can explain the information in DNA when the best explanation is sitting right in front of you. And the scientists of, of, of the past and many today, like um, the ones I list in the book, um, are still positing who's when and only when the, the the evidence in the in the crime scene actually dictates a who, but if I'm not allowed to even pause it, could you imagine if I was to walk in that crime scene and say, well, I can see the thing on the wall, but you know what, this is an accident because it has to be an accident because there's no who. Well, then you're gonna think I'm crazy, and I would be crazy, and that's what's happening right now in the sciences. We actually are advocating for a more robust version of science in which we're still going to ask all the five questions that modern science asks, mm -hmm. but we're going to allow ourselves the option of positing the sixth question if it's appropriate. What you're talking about when you talk about science in light of, let's just say, the existence of God or creation, I, I can't help but again think of uh, Frank Turk and, and his book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, mm -hmm. because it takes so much more faith with all the evidence of, the, of creation. Romans 1 talks about creation, mm -hmm. you know, the evidence in creation, and people are without excuse, and that people can look at this creation and go, no, I'm still, no, I'm not going with a who. I'm going, I'll talk, look at every, everything right. else, but not the possibility that there's a creator. Um, just share a little bit more about how we can be better reasoners and asking good questions like, you know, how did you come to that conclusion? And a lot of people really haven't thought this through. Have you found that? Yeah, no, it's, it's very, very much the case. And Frank's a good, good friend of mine, and we, we talk about this a lot. I mean, some, sometimes your agnosticism is rooted in the fact that you just don't think there's good information yet. Mm. So I'm not willing to say there's a God because there, I, I see your case, and I, I see that there is what you would consider to be evidence here or there. But for me, it just doesn't get me there. Well, well, if you're an atheist, or if you think atheism's got a better answer, I wrote a book called God's Crime Scene, where I just look at the eight features of the universe and ask the question, what's the best explanation for these eight features? Now, the features that I talk about are the origin of the universe, the fine-tuning of the universe, the origin of life, the appearance of design and biology, the presence of mind, consciousness, and free agency, and moral truth, and the existence of evil. In other words, that there's something that violates a standard that we consider to be righteous, and we call that evil. Well, those eight things 
I've talked to so many atheists about that. There's no answer for those. You can't, they, don't, they, they can't figure out how the universe began. There's lots of theories, but they don't really know. And they'll say, tell you that. Say, well, we don't know the answer to those things yet, but we will someday. Well, hold on a minute. Could you imagine if I said to you as a Christian, I can't explain how God is, but when we get to heaven, I'll find out. You would say, no. If you held the same level of agnostic skepticism because of lack of information and lack of evidence that you're pushing against the Christian worldview, if you held that same level of skepticism about atheism, you would know that there's far better answers on the Christian side about how the uh, universe, or why there appears to be uh, fine-tuning in the universe that allows for our existence in the first place, why or the origin of life requires DNA, and why there's the appearance of design and biology. Look, there's great answers on the Christian side, far better than, the, well, someday we'll figure it out in science on yeah, the other side. The only reason why they're still saying, well, someday we'll figure it out is because every time the evidence points to a who, they refuse to acknowledge a who exists. They try to mm-hmm. figure it out with a what. And if you're waiting to explain DNA with what's, be prepared to wait a lot longer because there's no answer with the what's. There's only an answer with who. Right. So I think this is why I would say that yeah, you have to be able to think critically. Treat everything like you're trying to figure out, like in a crime scene, how do you determine that this is true? Hmm. And by the way, know this, that whatever you get at the end of your critical thinking process, you're not going to have all the information you'd like. I always tell juries that I'm going to tell you everything that you need to know to render a verdict, but not everything that could be known. Hmm. There's a huge difference. Yes. I can tell you everything you need to know, but you'll still have a gap at the end of the evidence trail. And I expect you to step across the end of that trail, that step across the end of the evidence to the verdict is called reaching a verdict. The same way the step across the end of the evidence trail for Christianity, and I can only bring you so far. And that step you might call a step of faith, fine, but it's not a blind faith. It's it's being directed by an evidence trail that points in a certain direction, even though, and I can give you everything you need to know, but not everything that could be known. There's a lot about God that I don't understand. I don't know. I can't answer those questions. But this is true for every criminal trial, and verdicts are rendered every day. So you have enough. The question is, are you willing to take the step? Absolutely. Wow. Excellent. Wow. Thank you. And I, I, have a, I have a question for you. Um, you know, the world is becoming, it seems, more and more hostile to Christianity, more and more anti-Christian. So attacks on the faith— from skeptics are at an all-time high, and they go after the reliability of the Gospels, the nature of God in the Old Testament. You know, are Christians really equipped to defend the faith anymore? It seems like apologetics, they don't feel it's worth studying anymore. How can we get the church to understand yes. the importance to be able to defend the faith? And mm. I, I, I'm looking right here at your, um, at your investigator's guide, the 10 session for small groups, um, and there's videos that go along with it. Uh, how can people get a hold of the videos? Say they want to dip their toe into apologetics, and they, they like to, you know, how your approach to this has worked, and it's just been so edifying. Um, how would you suggest they get going on this? I, I think the book would be a great idea. Well, it, you know, first of all, I, we write books, and I hate, I hate selling books. There's nothing worse <laughs> than selling books. I mean, to me, I've been, I've been blessed that God has given me a chance to sure. write about the things that I was passionate about, that I learned about as I was investigating Christianity. So sure. I thank God for that every day. So, yes, we make a ton of materials that you can use in small groups. The videos are available on Right Now Media and on Vimeo okay. and on Amazon Prime, and they're going to buy the Ooh, DVDs. Great. So that's fine. That's, but I, I want to encourage something a little broader. Okay. I just don't want to focus on because there's lots of great materials out there in the apologetics world if you start looking for it. But here's the problem I think we've had as a church with the big C, is that our entry portal 
has been the wrong kind of entry portal hmm. for so many years that now we're an organization, a family that's filled with people who came in through the wrong door. We have said for, for years that the way to discover Christianity was true is kind of just to, to have an experience and pray about it, and hmm. that, that we come in through, through the window of experience. If you ask most people why you were Christian, they'll say, well, I was either raised that way, that's the number one answer, or the number two answer is I've had some kind of an experience, and it will vary from person to person, that demonstrated for me that Christianity was true. But what was the experience? Hmm. That's always the question. Like, what is the experience? And I'll tell you that it varies from person to person, and it always is pretty lame. I'll be honest, because if you ask my Mormon family, why are you Mormons, they give the exact same two answers. Hmm. And they've got experiences also, but you don't believe Mormonism is true. So, so what, what's, if you're going to get into Christianity the same way people get into Mormonism, there's a good chance you've got people who aren't all that thoughtful when they entered. Mm-hmm. They never looked at the evidence for this. They never even thought there was evidence for this. Well, they came into an experience. Mm-hmm. I'll give you an example of this. There was a, a Buffalo Bills player, DeMar Hamill, who, yes. who was um, uh, injured several uh, weeks ago. And, the very, and he was, almost died. And he, it was, he, they, they did a great job during that week. The next week the team played, they played against an opponent, and the very first play was a kick return for a touchdown Side. for the yep. Bills. <laughs> and the quarterback of the Bills ran back and forth on – this is his interview about this later. He ran back and forth on the sideline telling his players, do you see, you see that God is real. God <laughs> is real. Yes. And in the press release, mm-hmm. in the press conference rather, he said, I just learned – that we had not run a, a, a kickoff back for a touchdown in three years and three months. And what, of course, is this DeMar's number? Three. Now, do you see what I'm saying? Yes. If, if that is the thing that you're going to use as evidence <laughs> yeah. that yeah. God exists, well, I can pretty yeah. much twist and turn anything into mm. evidence for something. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. And that's where we're not critical enough. And we have to, I think, instead of having the, the door into the community be this experience door, the door into the community ought to be what it was for people in the first century. Let me tell you what I saw with my own mm. eyes. We saw it. He rose from the dead. Yeah. I can make a case for this. You can still make a case for it, yeah. but no one knows it. And well. that's the problem. We all, as Christians, ought. I shouldn't have to teach apologetics. I teach it at several universities. I shouldn't have to teach it anywhere. Yes. If you're a Christian, it be, should be the way you came in. But it never is. Mm-hmm. And that's why we have, oh. I think, on the inside, people who maybe aren't as, uh, they aren't, they aren't, they, they weren't kind of processed in. Uh, instead, we, we just said, oh, that's good enough. And it, 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 just be honest, in the culture around us, do we think that's good enough anymore? Mm. It probably isn't. Yeah. It's probably time to, to change that. You have to be ready to give an account for what we believe right. to people who oh, ask. Always, be, always ready. be ready. In yes. season and out. Yes. That's right. Yeah. Well, we really appreciate your time. Yes. We know you're very busy, and we're glad we were able to work out this uh, podcast today with you, Jay Warner Wallace. God bless you and continue to speak through you, mm-hmm. through books and all the presentations. And again, uh, thank you so much, sir. Yes. Thanks thank so much you. for having me. I really appreciate being thank here. Thank you. All right. Thank you. All right, so tomorrow, guys, we've got Pastor Tim Stevens of Fairview Baptist Church in Calgary up there in Canada. He was arrested a couple times for obedience to Christ, and we're titling that Counting the Cost When Government Takes on Religion. Don't say it can't happen in America. So that's tomorrow. And actually, it's the rest of the week, Pastor's Week, we've got Pastor Paul Blair coming up on Friday. Of course, he was one of the originators and the founders of the Liberty Pastors Movement, a phenomenal um, movement of men that are preaching the whole counsel of God. 
confronting evil, standing on the truth, and they are making a huge difference to draw pastors into this movement where they're emboldened by not only other brothers in Christ, but by the truth itself. So, uh, Paul Blair on Friday, thank you guys so much for tuning in. Mayor, just a couple of seconds left here. I just want to get your feedback on the, the great conversation we had with Jay Warner Wallace. I know you've been looking forward to this one. I have been, and I, and I, I just love how he comes to certain conclusions and, and the things based on how God has used him in secular and investigative yes. I mean the 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 looking for evidence and, yeah. and just that has always fascinated me and uh, boy we're just yeah. so blessed guys yeah. we have so much mm-hmm. an overwhelming amount of evidence and not only in the Bible but as he mentioned there were extra biblical sources Josephus and mm-hmm. and Tacitus and others that wrote about Jesus or wrote about the apostles and and uh, on and on and on. But anyway, guys, thanks again. God bless you. And as always, keep speaking the truth about things that matter.